Hi, everyone. It's The Problem with Reading here back with another exciting episode. Uh, just a disclaimer. Uh, we found out over the week that uh, a whole bunch of the things we thought about intuitionism are, in fact, wrong. Uh, we may do some kind of a correction later, but we are not, in fact, uh, contrary to your belief, a master's level philosophy class, but in fact, three random amateur people doing amateur things. So read the book or go to college if you want to truly understand what McIntyre is about. What he said. I guess that's just the problem with reading. I guess it hey. is. <laughs> so... Uh, what happened to me this week? I went to a fantastic house in New Hampshire that was old and entirely solid wood. There was no drywall. There was no sheetrock anywhere. It was gorgeous, painted, peeling, chipped wood from 1802, and it was gorgeous. It felt so nice to be in a house like that. Thomas, I believe you like houses like this. So the average house uh, that is built today has a, a very short life cycle. It's something on the order of, I want to say, 30 years mm-hmm. uh, before you can expect to have it torn down. Uh, and so there are two reasons for this. The first is that we don't really build houses that like structurally can last. But secondarily, uh, we don't build houses that are lovable. People don't uh, want to keep around... Um, houses that were trendy 15 years ago or 20 years ago or something. Um, You know, there's, well, lovability isn't reducible just to trend, but anyway, you get my point. Uh, And so, yeah, I I have uh, a great love for uh, buildings that uh, last. Character. Yeah. Like, like all of Europe, basically. Like people, you, people used to get excited when you were building a new building. Like think about our dispositions when we hear that a new building is going in. Um, I don't know about you guys, but at least um, for myself and people I know, when we hear about a new building going up, everyone's like, uh, um, uh, you know, th- there's going to be this terrible like square, uh, like monstrosity marring the skyline. Yeah, this like glass and steel monstrosity that is like at war with the human spirit. And maybe some people try to make like a half-hearted argument for its aesthetics or something, but pretty much everyone knows uh, that it's terrible. Um, well, I, as one who does make the half-hearted uh, arguments uh, for the aesthetics of that, like, I don't know, coming from the small town and then then moving into like a city and whatnot. I don't know. Skylines still get me. I do find them them quite lovely. I understand what you're saying in that there is something innately inhuman about them. They're they're almost too mag. I think yes, they're they're too magnificent. Um, they're too big and grandiose. Uh, and in a very modernist way, um, in a very mathematically precise way, um, that is unlike, for example, I don't know something like the the Taj Mahal or what have you, which is an architectural masterpiece but not in the not in, in in the same genre at all that one would consider a skyscraper so i guess i'm still blown away by the magnificence of them but i do understand your point when when it when there is something kind of inhuman about them that that's that's true um some skyscrapers are great uh but w- what i'm talking about more is like uh a six-story 
a mixed use box is being put up in your neighborhood, mm. uh, uh, which is happening a lot uh, in in cities near where I'm living right now. Uh, they they have none of the sort of me- sort of futury or retro futury magnificence of a skyscraper, but they also don't um, have any of the I don't know like character or just like hobbity goodness that you know appealing wooden uh, uh, late nineteenth century house in New England has either. Um, uh, what do you guys think about it, the the? I, I think the only way to describe them is like Airbnb model. Like when you look on Airbnb for apartments in cities, it's all they all look exactly the same. They all order from not IKEA, but like some kind of sub minimalist IKEA, if that were even possible. It's like IKEA light knockoff. IKEA knockoff, yeah. It's like a light wood with uh, sort of like white plastic covered surfaces. Um, maybe some like metal bars to make them look kind of edgy and they have tables, they have chairs, the beds, you know, don't, they're not going to have a backboard. They're going to just be super duper simple. Um, yeah, like the, like the mid-century modern or like, what do they call it? Mid-century Danish modern or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, like hyper clean, hyper efficient, uh, no showiness. It's almost purely reduced down to the, just a function. Like this is a table and it is only a table. See, Which, I don't I don't mind that so much if it's simply an Airbnb. And in my mind, if I'm if I'm there for the Airbnb, I'm 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 in that place for a specific reason and not to enjoy my my accommodations. Odds are I'm just gonna get there, I'm gonna sleep, I'm gonna wake up and I'll take a shower and, and off I go. It, so for that sort of minimalism, I don't mind it. I I, I also um you know I don't mind it. I I, I think it can look good. Personally, like I want my interior design to evoke a specific feeling, and that's coziness. Um, and I guess the white walls, especially, like just everything being stripped down and then everything being colored white, uh, with like only just little tiny accents of color and everything, to me evokes more like a surgery room or something than it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of like warm, cozy place that uh, I don't know, <laughs> someone nice lives. <laughs> well, if, if if there's anything that we've learned from McIntyre, it's that the modern state of emotivism has turned all conversations merely into rooms of surgery in which we combat over the uh, desiccated corpse of uh, civility and conversation while drinking our uh, Chardonnay. Uh, but speaking of drinking, I am enjoying some. <laughs> Lovely, some lovely, <laughs> nice <laughs> some, transition. <laughs> some lovely PG tips uh, with milk and sugar, uh, courtesy of Thomas. Last time he was here, he bought us a box of uh, uh, this lovely black tea that comes from England. Um, which, as we've found out in the reading this week, are the people who broke virtue and started Western civilization down the path of destruction by creating some weird concept uh, in the abstract called morality. Um, but the tea tastes good. Uh, if I had to describe it, I would say it, it, it tastes like slow decline. But what even is good, though? Aren't these just words we apply to how we're we're feeling about a particular decision? Yeah, yeah, Brevin. All you're saying is hurrah for this, hurrah for black tea, <laughs> hurrah for PG tips. There's really no meaningful content to, to this drink of the week. <laughs> it it ow that hurts. 
Wow. Um, I, I guess the irony is that... Is there any meaningful content in your glass, Thomas? Well, yeah, see, that's what I was going to say is, I guess the irony is, all we really want to say with Drink of the Week is hurrah for this. Uh, but my Drink of the, t- of the Week is uh, Water with Ice. Um, Damn. Uh, try otter, water uh, otter with with rice today. I was hanging out with uh, this afore- aforementioned. No, I haven't mentioned it because we got that powder. But but anyway, I, I visited friends in New Hampshire, and one of their friends who we met was a short term missionary in Alaska. And apparently, one d- delicacy there, or not delicacy, it's what you eat when you run out of all other food, is you take a whole bunch of seabirds and just stuff them into a seal skin and then bury it until it ferments and decomposes a little bit, and then you eat it. Yep. Wait, seabirds? Like seagulls? Yep. Oh. Just birds. You just go and so find birds and stuff them in It's not a delicacy. Yep. It's the opposite of a delicacy. It's not like the thing that you, you put out on rare occasions. It's the thing that you eat after you've eaten everything, literally everything else. I meant delicacy in the broad sense of a eclectic meal from another culture. So wait, wait, you bury it? Like literally dig a hole and yes. bury it? Yes, you, you bury it until it decomposes and ferments, and then you eat these birds. Well, I never. Well, speaking of that, uh, I, for one, am drinking some black tea as well. Hurrah for tea mm. that I purchased on Amazon, I believe, my junior year of college. So it has been aged to perfection. Is this loose leaf? Uh, it is loose leaf. I, I, I love loose leaf tea. I have a nice little thermos that has a, a, a mesh at the very top. So you pour your tea in, That's pour your beautiful. water in, put the mesh on top, and you 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 are in a happy state. That is beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you know what else is in a happy state? Um, it's all of society, uh, uh, at least according to this one guy uh, named Robert Murphy, who's the which who wrote the book that I'm reading, which is called uh, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism. Um and Robert Murphy is an economist uh, who does various things like write lots of books and fantasy adventures illustrating the uh, glories of liberal economic theory. Um, but he also does a podcast called Contra Krugman, where they uh, shout about how Paul Krugman uh, doesn't know anything, which is great. Um, and the book is good in as far as it challenges uh, some received narratives about things like robber barons, um, the relationship between capitalism and racism, um, sort of other sort of sub stories that, that contribute to a lot of stuff in modern discourse. I think he, he tries to debunk a, a lot of it with uh, history. Um, but what I don't like about it is it's sort of overly optimistic, libertarian, utopian-esque perspective on stuff. Uh, which is something I think I'm becoming more and more suspicious of, even though I would default to a lot of his arguments where I arguing about some kind of economic policy, especially with McIntyre and sort of he actually gets at some of the problems with it is when you try and translate that over into social virtue or stuff, it it really, really falls short. But he 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 tries his darndest to turn us all into robber barons and such, but it's a good time. Sounds like it. Well, I have been uh, I have been reading, uh, well, quote unquote reading. I've been listening to uh, a book on Audible, so that sort of kind of counts. Um, I've been <laughs> listening through. Okay, oh, I appreciate that. Uh, I've been listening through uh, "Consider the Lobster" and other short stories by my main man David Foster Wallace, uh, an excellent uh, writer. Really, really well done um, nonfiction. I think I like his nonfiction way more than. Uh, well, no, I don't. I don't think I. I very much do like his nonfiction way more than his fiction. Um, his his main project is kind of the thing he's constantly pointing at is in essence get out of yourself get quit 
quit thinking that you are the only the only important person in your narrative and start start serving something outside of yourself um he he kind of resents both modernism and postmodernism in deconstructing uh the in, in in deconstructing any meta narrative or i guess this was mainly postmodernism that it deconstructed any meta narrative that we could attach ourselves to and so kind of left us all floating out there in some solipsistic void um and so his big thing is pushing against that and so uh, every every essay does uh you know does something with that or maybe not every essay but do you see a lot of parallels with mcintyre's argument in terms of the modern self just being standing for nothing in particular but potentially for everything and thus just floating like a lobster i i I could see maybe some traces i'm not sure how much he was impacted by McIntyre. I know he was very well versed in philosophy. I think he had a philosophy undergrad, I want to say. Maybe maybe in English, but he he studied uh philosophy and I think hmm yeah I, I honestly don't know and enough to say it wouldn't shock me if there were some relationships um between uh between McIntyre and uh Dave Foster Wallace, but I, I just simply couldn't say for sure. Stephen, have you read Infinite Jest? I have. So in Infinite Jest, there, I think the most direct philosophy um, comes in the form, uh, actually well known to philosophers throughout history, um, and that is um, a dialogue between... Between Marath and Steeply? Between two characters, that, that's right, named Marath and Steeply. And... Uh, one of their dialogues is about the difference between freedom from something and the freedom to do something. Um, these are two sort of the two opposing views of freedom. And I don't know how well they relate to McIntyre because, you know, we're still at the beginning of After Virtue here, but they are highly related to a lot of sort of contemporary discussions of liberalism. Mm -hmm. Um, Many see, especially like the American forms of liberalism as being freedom from uh, having to do any particular thing. Uh, While some, especially sort of religious illiberals view their worldview as uh, sort of providing uh, a framework to have sort of freedom to achieve the good. So basically, if freedom from something impedes your, so if freedom from constraint impedes your, or like completely prevents you from being free to achieve the good, then, you know, is it really freedom? Anyway, you, dear listener, should read these dialogues uh, for yourself. They are very um, good. They're very well done. Uh, And so anyway, to to the extent that McIntyre is related to um, this view of freedom is freedom to achieve the good, not freedom from all external constraint. uh, uh, They, these, at least, at least this work of, of Wallace's is related, but um, I don't know. I couldn't say more than that. Certainly. And I mean, 
uh, Howard Wass, who was another big virtue ethicist that kind of worked with McIntyre and um, and a few others to to revitalize virtue ethics back in the the seventies and eighties. Um, his his big uh, push was for uh, storytelling as virtue uh, as virtuous and as uh, the way that you pass down virtue uh, to the next generation as moral education. Um, that when we receive a story with a moral framework around it, we are able to insert ourselves into that story and become a part of that story. He uses this primarily with Christianity. He's a, he's a theologian um, uh, at Duke, I believe. And his, his thought was mainly with the parables of Christ um, and the story of Christ. We, we are encouraged to insert ourselves into the story and act accordingly. Um, and we find that the saints that have done so, they they have inserted themselves into this story and have made their own stories around that. And then we're encouraged to insert, insert, insert ourselves into their stories and hopefully we'll do the same. So kind of the the reinforcement of of these narratives uh, to commit ourselves to um, is distinctly that's that's wallace that's mcintyre that's that's a lot of this pushback against post-modernity breaking down the meta-narrative etc and in terms of mcintyre uh turning now to that much of what he devotes in chapter three is specifically to uh characters and this idea of characters and looking at emotivism um uh, chapter three is entitled emotivism social content and social context um and as we've reached that time, I'm going to briefly attempt to summarize uh, chapters three and four, and then we'll follow up with uh, trying to pick it apart a little bit, at least in terms of uh, trying to understand it. Um, so chapter three starts off, and McIntyre makes the observation that uh, with every moral philosophy, you have a sociology that comes along with it. In, in other words, you can't talk about morality without knowing the types of beings that are doing, that are enacting it. Um, and so one of his critiques of emotivism, or at least observations, is that because emotivism as a theory of use is, you know, hurrah for this, and your um, appeals to morality are, are nothing more than a uh, you publicly upholding your emotions, there's an obliteration of um, the distinction between manipulative speech and non-manipulative speech. Um, hypothetically, you could be manipulative in in the way that you just tell someone anything in order them in order to make them do what you want or you could treat them as a rational being and instead give reasons appealing to certain morality from which they can then make their decision but because in emotivism there is no impersonal uh thing to appeal to there is no outside judge or force or anything like that there's no way to know whether or not it's a manipulative statement or not, or to distinguish at all, is just an impossible task. And so from this, he sort of goes on to try and figure out what is the content of an emotivist society. And the way that he does this is by introducing what he calls characters, um, which he says are a very special type of social role that places a certain kind of moral constraint on the personality of those who inhabit it in a way in which many other social roles do not. So Characters in any given society are extremely specific social roles that also pair and match perfectly with moral ideas. They're masks of moral philosophies in a character form, in a sort of just an idea. 
and these characters pop up as in in societies with particular moral characters and and content as sort of the epitome of the society's thought. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone thinks that they're a good idea, but it does mean that they're recognized and accepted of this character does this. And so he brings up some examples, uh, like a German professor in you know the 1800s. Everyone knows the character and content of that. It's an idea that they could call to the head, or at least he could. Or the English schoolmaster is another one he brings up. But for the modern age, two of the most important characters that he brings up um, and talks about is that of the manager and of the therapist. And the manager is a character of the modern emotivist age because it represents the removal of moral discussion, moral discourse from the public. You can't argue with a manager about what is right and wrong because the manager's job is simply to be effective, to improve whatever the goals are of the company, to increase production, to make wages more matched to whatever the demands of the company are, to increase efficiency, etc. Whereas the therapist takes the personal and turns it into public display. It, it takes personal life and makes it the realm of the scientist, of, of management. Um, so these characters link into what McIntyre talks about as being the modern self, the emotivist self. And this emotivist self, he says, is stripped of public morality because all it can do in public is be managerial. Um, and in private, moral discussions are still characterized by emotivism and they're interminable and they still, we can only argue back to our premises and uh, we all appeal to different impersonal standards that we can't resolve. And so he says, uh, quote, in the domain of fact, there are procedures for eliminating disagreement. In that of morals, the ultimacy of disagreement is dignified by the title pluralism. So this democratized modern self at once stands for anything and nothing, because the modern moral character is to stand apart from all morals and arguments and simply judge them rationally, or at least attempt to. And this is the imagined self that he says is a false image and very destructive, and that ultimately just takes away many parts of what it is to be human. And so because of this, the modern moral disagreements that we see, and he characterizes one of the biggest ones as between communitarianism, so you can think of that, you know, communism, socialism, you know, things that, that emphasize social cohesion and individualism, libertarians and capitalists, as ultimately being an argument that has ended. It's a false choice because those two have eliminated all of their competition from the discourse and being opposites as they are, they present themselves as the only two options, whereas in reality, both options taken to the logical extreme are unlivable. And so then he returns, how did we get here? Was there ever a point where this was not the case? And this is where he turns to chapter four and looks at what he calls the predecessor culture, which is the enlightenment. And here, uh, just to go very quickly, he looks and does some uh, historical uh, analysis and that the enlightenment was primarily a Northern European project, secular, Protestant, there was an educated class, uh, there was bureaucracy and a reading public so that philosophy talked about in universities became public discourse and public action extremely quickly. And he analyzes the three options that uh, the Enlightenment had um, in terms of three characters. The first is Kierkegaard. Uh, and Kierkegaard presents 
two ways in which one could be moral or one could choose to live in, in, in the world. One is the ethical, which is submitting yourself to a moral system. And the other one is, uh, I'm forgetting the, uh, the, the aesthetic, which is to live randomly like a lover, flitting from one thing to the next, not committing to, to anything. Um, and Kierkegaard suggests that we must make a radical choice to do the ethical, to submit ourselves to some kind of impersonal standard. McIntyre disagrees with this, and he argues that Kierkegaard's ethical is in, is in fact an homage to Kant, which attempts to find an impersonal, or sorry, a impartial outside standard via reason. But because this ultimately fails in Kant's arguments, that Kierkegaard uses eth- uh, radical choice as the only way to achieve this, whereas the aesthetic represents the failure of uh, Hume and Diderot, who attempted to use the passions to justify morality and say that that was the origin and the the font of it. But that ultimately, in the end, both of them fail to uphold their morality and their arguments on their own merits, which is why Kierkegaard has to resort to radical choice, which ultimately is incoherent, because you can't submit to a uh, universal... Sorry, you can't choose to submit to something that uh, would be... I'm failing here. Uh, Stephen, you want to help me out? So this is what Kierkegaard, in, in essence, was saying. Um, Kant, uh, Kant failed in his... He recognized that Kant failed in his project to to create a purely rational uh, ethical system. And Hume failed in his argument to create a purely emotional one. Or uh, emotional might be a bit of pejorative... Um, uh, one based on the passions, uh, to use McIntyre's word. Uh, prim- primarily, these failures were coming because Hume was so good at his negative argument and Kant was so good at his negative argument. That is to say, Hume had already kind of picked apart a lot of the rationalist way of of creating an ethical system. And Kant, in turn, did a pretty good job at picking apart the um, the passion-based one. And also I think Kierkegaard would have probably, he was smart enough to recognize that both of them failed, even without these, these negative assertions that both were kind of yelling. And therefore if both fail in their argumentation for why they're such a good system, in, but they're the only two options in which, in which case like you, you're kind of left with, well, I have two options. I have the aesthetic and I have the ethical both of them have been kind of determined to not really have any good cases but I have to choose one. So here I go. I'm going to choose. And then you, you choose. I think that's what is being worked with. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and and then you, the, well, no, and that's, yeah. And th- that brings us to the end of, of chapter four. And then the implication is just, so here we are with really good negative arguments being made um, that we can't use rationality to get to our, to our moral system. And we can't use emotions on the other hand. And because this Enlightenment society failed to resolve this problem, that was the the breaking point that will ultimately lead us to the modern world in which we are so far disconnected from any kind of ability to discuss ethics in public, to have a morality in the discourse. Yeah, which which then ties back to the the three levels of society that he talks about uh, in, in, in chapter two, which his uh, supposition is that first there was the society that was able to resolve this, to have the ultimate uh, criteria for morality. And then once, but then there was the secondary society that tried to justify it via rationality. And once that failed, then you get to modern society in which everything has failed and the 
the center cannot hold, the falcon cannot find the, cannot hear the falconer, etc. Nice reference. Yeah, I, I think that 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 does somewhat logically follow to the sort of intuitionism that that we see where Kierkegaard at least had this kind of two systems of the ethical and the aesthetic, and like, well, I've I've got to choose one, but ultimately at the end of the day, if none of them have any good reasons, well, is there any good reason for even using the traditional forms of good and evil? And so you have Kierkegaard and even or not, sorry, not Kierkegaard. You have uh, uh, Nietzsche and Moore, who Nietzsche is saying, well, let's get beyond this idea. Let's 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 move past this traditional idea of good and evil. We we need to create our own new ethical system that is apart from this. And I think McIntyre will get into this in the future. And then more who's just like, well, it's just an, an inexpressible thing that we kind of have a basic understanding for. And then that leads to an even further watering down of any sort of ethical dialogue. What did you think of the, uh, of his use of characters? Cause I thought that was probably the most interesting part of chapter three. Um, just to, Oh yeah. Go, go for it. Yeah, I, I I really enjoyed that discussion. It, it, I I am I know nothing about psychology, but it, the little I do know, it, it reminded me somewhat of Jung's archetypes. Uh, you have just different types that each society will have, um, and it seemed like an ethical version of that or a moral version of that or, or what have you. I I was a little surprised he he used the bureaucrat to kind of show the pure emotivist uh, character. Or maybe not emotivist, uh, more the the utilitarian and or viewing people as as means rather than ends, which I I can see that I would I personally thought that uh, the politician, um, kind of the the person who the modern politician who sees their constituents as votes that they need to acquire, and that that are the the pol- the political system that America and most. Um, uh, democratic societies find themselves in is the politicians are kind of forced to view their constituents as means to ends because they need their votes. So even if they're legitimately trying to do some some form of of good for them, at the end of the day, they need to advertise in order to be able to acquire their vote. Uh, and therefore, their constituents are just ipso facto means to an end. So I'm kind of surprised he didn't go with that one instead. I actually disagree with that. And oh. the reason is McIntyre is writing in history and politicians of the kind that you described that, you know, have to gather popular support or are, you know, leading large groups of people and using them as ends to whatever their personal gains are, are as old as time. You know, you can look at Pericles in Athens, you can look at any number of, uh, I don't know, Persian kings, Roman emperors, uh, Caesar manipulating the public, etc. We've had manipulative politicians for all time. But what we haven't had for all time, and it's one of the things that, at least in political science, there's a break um, between traditional societies and modern societies. And the difference between them is the idea of relationships. Uh, Whereas in a traditional society, your relationships um, and your ability to navigate it depend on your uh, knowledge of people. And, you know, this person's my uncle's aunt's uh, second cousin twice removed who married my cousin who you know, once slapped a fishmonger in the face and he saved his life. I, I, I don't know. But there's that uh, concept of how to, to navigate the social world. And then there's the modern world in which it's navigated through impersonal relationships and uh, contracts and uh, documents and laws. And the modern world, as uh, e- economies grew, as the power of states grew, as war became a larger 
enterprise that involved total war, that involved whole societies and whole governments, a parallel bureaucracy grew alongside the population, alongside the the government. And this is the the managerial uh, side, the bureaucratic side that is a re- that is a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, that's he had a um, McIntyre had a discussion of Weber, and that's a lot of what Weber is looking at is these modern societies with their massive bureaucracies, and that your that our even today um, this weekend my wife had to go to the RMV to get it registered, and it's like you know one hundred and sixty eight bucks, and you have to bring in a bazillion different forms and have it signed off from an insurance from an insurance agency. We got Geico, of course, the commercials convinced us. And you have to have, you know, particular forms of insurance. And that's our engagement with a large impersonal system. We don't engage with politicians. We go to the RMV and that's our encounter with the government with, you know, sort of the mass underworking clockwork of society is this bureaucracy that we deal with. Um, And it's not people anymore. It's just this system. And that's the managerial state because a politician can have his own personal morality and, and his goals, but the bureaucratic system just goes and we just have to interact with it and go along with it. Interesting. Oh, that, that, that that's well said. I, I like that. So in this case, the politician is really a subset of the bureaucratic manager. That's what, that's what you're saying. Nowadays, potentially. Okay. I like that. So I wanted to ask, um, we've gotten into, uh, a discussion uh, sort of within McIntyre's methodology, uh, which is uh, sort of arguing from characters. But something I'm curious about is how convincing we find that methodology uh, at all when he towards the end of the second chapter and at the beginning of the third chapter um, was discussing how uh, he was going to kind of substantiate his argument uh, through history and um, uh, I guess uh, placing a big emphasis on context and so on. Um, I, I guess I had my my very kind of modern conception of uh, like what evidence was and what I was expecting him to come up with. So um, I was expecting him, you know, in chapter three to say, okay, a morality entails a sociology. And so within such and such a society, we see that according to Jane Doe at all, you know, 90% of rich kids behave uh, like this or something. Um, and that's why emotivism is, you know, empirically manifested sociologically. Um, but instead, uh, his, his appeal to character, uh, uh, to, to kind of, to these, the, this taxonomy of types uh, was, is a new argumentative approach to me. Um, uh and um, it, in a number of ways, um, one, I, I still don't feel like I've, I've, I've wrapped my mind um, around it on a number of fronts. But um, one really fascinating piece uh, is that some of the hard evidence he cites is not um, this kind of, uh, I don't know what to call it, like data heavy uh, approach I described before. But, he, but the evidence uh, for uh, these types is actually literature. 
Um, and so anyway, I, I've asked a bunch of questions in here, but uh, trying to distill them to something concrete is, I guess, one, um, do you all find uh, his uh, taxonomy of, of types to be like a convincing way to show that emotivism, uh, I guess, is is in our society. And two, do you find that that like literature is good evidence for this? I I have two thoughts on this. The first is that I think we shouldn't be surprised that McIntyre ranges a little bit further than pure argumentative analytical philosophy for what he's trying to do, especially since his original case is analytical philosophy can't look itself in the mirror. But the second thing is, I I definitely agree with you that I, I think the character argument is kind of out of left field. I don't really know where it's coming from, what tradition, why it's important. I kind of feel like McIntyre is like kind of the, you know, has the conspiracy corkboard and he has just, you know, this giant wall that has all these different ideas and concepts and figures and, you know, characters like, oh, and here's the manager connected with the red string to the therapist. But all of this circles back to Ant Eller and Kierkegaard. <laughs> but you know who Kierkegaard was really about? It was Kant. And in Kant, he actually got his maxims <laughs> from his parents and his parents, you know, had a dinner party with Hume, you know. <laughs> but um, so I I am with you somewhat at a loss with what I'm supposed to do with these characters. Um, but I think he just kind of uses them to to set up the more substantive arguments that he's going to make uh, or that he does make in the, in the following chapter, perhaps. I, one, I guess somewhat spoiler alert. He, uh, I forget which chapter it is, uh, but it's about halfway in the book where he it, it kind of out of left field again, goes on a very long rampage about the field of sociology in general, which it was inter- it's interesting because I, I recall reading that chapter and apparently by the time I'd gone to that chapter, I'd completely forgotten about chapter three, wherein uh, he he at least somewhat offered some praise towards the field of sociology in that sociology is the way that we can see what society or what ethical system a society has, um, that in essence, uh, it, it is going to be the documented evidence. But he has a, a quite strong skepticism towards the effectiveness of sociology. Not that that justifies this, but given his skepticism, it's understandable that he goes at sociology from a more philosophical point of view. That is to say, he, uh, he, he goes at it more analyzing certain archetypes found in a society rather than trying to cite Jane Doe at all for certain sociological uh, facts and figures. Well, I am... I am sympathetic to his skepticism about like empirical, so-called empirical methods in social science. Actually, tying this into last week, um, when Nassim Taleb is taking a break from deadlifting and drinking unfiltered tap water from uh, all throughout the and world, hanging out with and, Sicilian uh, barbers. And yes, yes, that's exactly right. And and eating things with squid ink and hanging out with Sicilian barbers and so on. He. Um, is busy yelling at epidemiologists. Um, Taleb, uh, uh, being trained as a statistician, uh, is is very skeptical of uh, a lot of modern science that uh, purports uh, to rely on uh, statistics. <clears throat> and, you know, I have to share his uh, skepticism there. I, I think a great example of this is um, what happened with dietary science uh, in our country 
the United States in the last um, in in the twentieth century, basically the country's disposition towards saturated fat has changed. Uh, so so starting uh, in the uh, late nineteenth century and early twentieth century, um, uh, no one believed that it was related to uh, like coronary uh, uh, disease for a number of reasons. Um, in the post-war period, going all the way up and sort of through the 90s, uh, saturated fat was uh, considered by the community uh, basic, uh, you know, as being the, the great cause of the um, heart disease epidemic. And then starting in the early 2000s up to today, um, saturated fat has been rehabilitated uh, as a dietary thing. And the, and the reason for this, um, at least according to um, some meta studies that I've read, is uh, basically uh, a failure or, or basically like the impossibility of isolating variables uh, in these big uh, like population studies. So, so, so science relies on like empirical science relies on your ability to control your, um, uh, you, you need to be able to isolate a variable, but you can't in, in something as uh, complicated as a society. And so um, sort of bringing this all the way back around to McIntyre, um, I can see how looking at these sort of big, embarrassing, sort of public uh, failures, uh, how McIntyre would conclude, like a lot of other people, that, that basically statistics aren't helpful uh, uh, for, uh, as empirical as they seem, uh, they're, they're, they're just not helpful. Um, uh, so anyway, um, that, that's a little bit of speculation on my part, but uh, about you know what McIntyre actual actually thinks and why, but uh, I guess all I'm trying to say is he, he has my sympathies. You know, that. Thomas, <laughs> weird that you should bring that up, but actually, it's time for our next segment, which is uh, 100 years of bad dieting advice. Um, so sad reacts only. Uh, but here are the uh, years of uh, the <laughs> diet advice, uh, backed up by supposed science, and then the uh, diet advice itself. Uh, uh, all mics on for reacts, uh, but like I said, sad reacts only. Uh, in the 1930s, uh, go in, go all in on grapefruit. Just eat grapefruit. That is oh. it. Uh, next, eat meat at every meal. 1933, 1940, <laughs> eat beans at every meal. I, th I, I think we're kind of cycling through the food here. Um, uh, 1946, uh, eat a thousand calories of ice cream every day. Can we go back to that uh, time? 1950s in Life magazine uh, have a sugar-based diet. Uh, also in the 1950s, uh, just tuna. Just only eat tuna. Wait, like only tuna? Like yes. nothing else? Oh, yep. she's sweet. Uh, 1950s, also a really great time. Uh, ingest a tapeworm. Uh, order tapeworm uh, eggs online. Um, I guess not in, in the 1950s, but it's persisted, apparently. And then you can just grow tapeworms inside your body, which, you know, make you feel like you're full all the time and you'll lose all your weight. It's a good time. Uh, 1964, and our personal favorite, is uh, the is uh, the drinking man's diet. 
because distilled spirits have no calories. <laughs> the advice is just... <laughs> oh, I wish... <laughs> Uh, in 1975, the dairy farmers of Washington uh, advised everyone that they'd proven that you could just drink unlimited milk and you would be fine. 1983, they just said that you cannot be unhealthy by eating food, so just literally eat whatever you want. Um, you can never be fat. That is never a thing that exists. Um, Fatness is a myth perpetuated by the patriarchy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In 2010, uh, there was the air diet. I think you just make eating motions and then just have like salt water and drink that as soup. And that's your entire uh, thing here. And I believe the final one is, I think it's, it's a little bit unclear, but I think this is from, what is it from? Well, anyway, here's the other one. It's just inject yourself with fertility hormones. I don't know why, but that's the last one listed. That was 2011. (laughs) Fertility hormones. So what you get like, you get super fertile and therefore you lose weight. Yes. I guess it would incentivize you if you're, <laughs> if you're really feeling it, you got to lose that weight and look good for, for those uh, prospective mates. This is science guys. I don't, I just want to point that out. I, I can't debate. <laughs> I mean, these, these are great. Um, we go back to the distilled spirits. Uh, <laughs> 1964. Hey, no, no. It says you can buy the pamphlet on Amazon. I, I kind of want to. Oh my gosh! We'll put it in the show notes. But <laughs> but, um, but the funny thing about the um, about the saturated fats saga is that the way that uh, we have overcome, like just the way that the um, I guess community has has overcome this is actually by uh, uh, using a, by adopting a different method. So instead of relying on these big kind of population-based um, um, epi- epidemiological studies, uh, people people realized, you know, in the '90s that like the more that they were following the mainstream advice, the actual like like they were actually getting worse um and so the way that they sort of overcame the popular narrative was by instead of looking at population studies they started looking at the human endocrine system now the human body is of course fantastically complex um but uh in some ways it is more like easily modelable than um and it like more permissive of uh, empirical science than um, whole societies are or whole populations of people rather are. And so um, it has its parallel here with McIntyre because, um, well, someone may say, well, sociology is not dietary science, but sociology also relies on uh, like statistical population based uh, methods, um, as far as I understand it anyway. And so, um, uh, and so in the same way that, uh, in the domain of dietary science, they overcame the problem by, um, finding a different methodology. Uh, um, uh, I guess we can too here with McIntyre and 
Um, I guess the alternative methodology is characters. Um, I mean, I guess we could have summed up this entire segment by just saying uh, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Figures lie and liars figure. I don't know about you guys. I know how to run a linear regression, and all I know is that it produces truth when I do these numbers. But that's Pure, unadulterated truth. Such that human minds cannot properly comprehend. Okay, listen. If if Kant knew how to do linear regressions, he would not have failed to find a purely rational uh, basis for morality. That's all I'm saying. Or he would have solved all of ethics, all of philosophy, <laughs> probably. You just yep yep. Um, okay, so let's let's loop back to to uh, Kant and Kierkegaard and uh, Hume as sort of our stand-ins for rationality. Uh, is Kant trying to figure out how do we, can we justify morality by pure rationality? And then we have Hume, which is saying, let's do it by purely emotions. And then we have Kierkegaard, who's like, well, actually, neither of these work. So how about radical choice? And as it turns out, that's also incoherent, um, at least according to McIntyre. How are you guys convinced by this? Do you think that McIntyre sufficiently shows that these characters are stand-ins for, um, I don't know, the different uh, strands of the zeitgeist that's running through this Northern European in enlightenment. Are you convinced by um, chapter four and this, you know, sort of simplification of a much larger process? So chapter three, I could kind of uh, take it or leave it. That one doesn't, yeah, I, I'm kind of with Thomas on that. It did, it did come from left field and that, that that's fair. Chapter four, I, Corkboard aside, like, yes, he is somewhat coming across as a conspiracy theorist, but the thing is, it, it really does make sense. Um, these, these philosophers are responding both to each other, but also to whatever kind of cultural impacts that their predecessors did have. And so it does seem to follow. Like, it, the way he paints it out is a very reasonable explanation. If if one attempt at rationalizing ethics via the passions had failed, then the next choice would be, well, rationalize it via, well, rationality, like through pure reason and understanding. And if neither of those worked, either find a third option, which I don't think anyone really has been able to do, or just simply say, well, you've got to make a choice, so choose. So I, I thought he did a very good job at tracing that line of thought. And I'm, I'm pretty well convinced, especially and it, it all makes sense with the idea of the enlightenment and the enlightenment being what well, we have to, we have to prove everything, especially outside of the realm of, uh, of religion. And so they had to find some sort of basis in, in that. And it, it strikes me that that follows. Yeah. Um, all right then. So I guess chapter uh, five, uh, Stephen. What do we have coming up? We have why the Enlightenment project of justifying morality had to fail. So we'll find out all why the Enlightenment was an utter failure, and then with chapter six, some consequences of the failure of the Enlightenment project. So we get to yell at the Enlightenment for failing, and uh, we'll we'll know why. Well, I can think of no what no better way to spend my week than to. Uh, Think about how the Enlightenment was a mistake. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we all know this, right? Well, we all know this. This, incidentally, this this was the book that convinced me uh, that the Enlightenment really was a failure. Um, because up up until then, I was like, 
oh yeah, bringing reason and logic into the realm of philosophy and religion. Hey, that's awesome. I really, I'm really getting into this. And then I read McIntyre and I saw, oh, perhaps it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Although to be fair, to give give us computer science, so I'm 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 at least grateful on a mercenary level. You're a part of the problem, actually. You could make a very compelling case for that. Yep. Nice. Very. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut that part out. <laughs> yes. Um. Huh. Uh, what 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 next do we want to go um go on to the next part in the um outline, or do we want to discuss something else? Yep. Let's let's do articles. Uh, all right. Well, that was a good discussion of McIntyre. I'm sure we resolved every single question. Um, for those listening, you do not have to read the book. This is just as good as reading all 20 pages of McIntyre. Um, I guarantee you, we have not left out or misunderstood anything. Trust um, us. We're professionals. We're, yeah, we're, we are voices you hear in your head that come from the internet. We are trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Believe. Um, But speaking of hearing voices in your head, uh, the that was really awesome is a article uh, in Quillette, which is an online magazine that I've discovered, uh, or I guess not that I've discovered, but that's kind of rose to prominence as sort of uh, what's called the intellect, the intellectual dark web, just sort of, I guess you could call them free thinkers, heterodox thinkers. Um, But the but they have a lot of really good quality content because they attract a really weird group of people. And one of the people that they attracted this week uh, that wrote this article called Sad Radicals um, is a former anarchist who eventually left her or no, his, sorry, his radical community. Um, And it's sort of a sociology of radical movements and groups because this person has been on the inside of many of them and a part of many of them. And so it just sort of goes through um, a lot of the pathologies um, and elements of it that are ne- that are negative from someone who's kind of escaped it. And I, I, I really tried to read it, and I think I think about it in a very um, holistic way. In that, uh, one of the things that the writer talks about is that for any social group you will have a percentage of people who are relatively self-sufficient they're stable you ha- you'll have a um percentage of people who are unstable or vulnerable and then you'll have a percentage of people who are predators who can use that group status and being in a group to manipulate people to their own pr- particular ends um and, and that's true whether you're in a community uh rec league or um you know the weather underground or uh the Catholic Church, for that matter. So, to be f- fully fair, this is not this is not a necessarily a particular indictment of radicalness or radical beliefs. But I, I think the perspective that this article brings is really interesting, um, just in in terms of the uh, the what this person ar- argues is the toxicity of radical communities uh, isn't a bug but a feature because of the ideology and norms that are built around beliefs that view the outside system as something to be wholly against and to be wholly suspicious of, um, which then in turn r- removes agency from any, from every individual, creates sort of infinite r- responsibility and suspicion and constantly questioning yourself, um, which for 
uh, which for um, genuine people can potentially be good, but for predators, it, it, it makes a, a community in which people who are willing to take advantage of others have huge openings with which to basically do their uh, evil work among their fellow human beings. A anyway, fascinating article, um, even-handed, I think, and definitely worth a read. Sounds like what the, uh, the Enlightenment one. Yeah, I, I, I like that that categorization of the, the the different people and how that would affect different groups. That's that, that's well said. Well, Brevin, maybe you can explain this. Um, I don't know, <laughs> dark Enlightenment group to me because uh, to me it's funny they have this name or not dark Enlightenment. That's um like a neo reactionary thing. What are they called? The intellectual dark. dark uh, web. <laughs> uh intellectual dark web because it's a bad name um, barry weiss of the new york times thought of it but, uh, you know what if yeah yeah well i was well yeah i mean i was gonna ask because it makes it sound it makes them sound like i don't know they're they're supposed to be dangerous or something but in a lot of ways it uh, aren't they mostly like like bourgeois liberals it, isn't, isn't it just like bourgeois left liberalism um it i so i would say they're fairly heterodox in their beliefs, at least from my understanding, um, and I certainly wouldn't claim to be an expert or agree with any particular one of them or, or all of them, um, but the only thing that they have in common is um, most of them will have some one belief or another that maybe excludes them from polite society in one way or another. So, so it's more about like rebelling against. Uh, like I said, it's uh, they're I, I, they're, I they're, like, they're very invested like, in being heterodox. They don't want to be part of the the orthodoxy of liberal establishment, conservative establishment. Um, at least in 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 theory, that's what a you know one of them would say is that they're a free thinker in one way or another. Uh, uh, how about you, Thomas? Did you free think with any articles this week? Um, no, uh, I'm not a free thinker and special. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, actually, um, I mean, I confess I didn't actually read this article this week. It, it's actually a little bit old. Um, it's from the summer, um, 2018, um, uh, issue of Jacobin magazine, um, uh, a socialist magazine, uh, named after people who would probably guillotine me if they could. Um, but the article is called It's Okay to Have Children. The kind of subtitle or summary or whatever it is says, instead of challenging the pressures that capitalism puts on child rearing, liberals surrender to it. And I think that this is, I, I like this article in a number of ways. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of these funny areas where I don't know the horseshoe of right illiberalism and liberalism uh, actually touches and becomes like a circle, I guess. So where contempt left liberals would say actually, and well, just, just contemporary liberals are pushing on families saying, you know, if you can't afford to uh, have kids, don't have them. Uh, having kids is bad for the environment. Don't have them. You know, having kids won't make you happy. Don't have them. Um, uh, but basically, just there are a whole bunch of pressures in the contemporary world, and so it's been the individual to 
give in and choose childlessness. Now, for various reasons, right illiberals and left illiberals uh, sort of refuse to uh, cooperate with this program. But for me, um, someone who's kind of in a weird, just sort of confused state politically, uh, it's just fun to see a left-wing publication tell people uh, that uh, they can have kids, actually, because, uh, I don't know, it's it's just, well, one, you know, full disclosure, I, I am a, I guess, pro, pro-natalist, or at least um, permissive of natalism person. So, so on some level, it's just fun to find a, a left-wing publication that, you know, agrees with me on an issue of, uh, I don't know, social, social policy or something. But um, uh, I don't know. I, I just think it's fantastic to have a sort of natalist case being made from that. I have a question. Um, when you're inside the matrix and you're, you know, being milked of your electricity by robot people, uh, how does procreation work? Where do babies come from in the matrix? How does that work? No, I've never actually thought of that. That's a pretty important loophole that they didn't really figure out. I wonder, maybe... maybe well, no, I don't sorry. know. So, so, so consequences... In, in the Matrix, don't they... Well, I've only uh, saw this movie once. Only like somewhat. Eight, so, like, don't they, when Neo um, is fighting some, some isn't there person like consequences and gets for what hit, in the Matrix uh, he'll, like, in cough life? up blood um, uh, in, the, in the real world. So I guess there are some real life consequences, uh, but so, not insofar as like if Neo had sex with Trinity in the Matrix, she wouldn't get pregnant. I mean, yeah, like, it's it's all in your head. Yeah. Uh, because he's in the real world, now it's all her dress. Well, well, wait, but well, wait, is it though? Because well, 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 they're matching they're they're mapping tr- like physical trauma onto each other. So why couldn't they map other kinds of physical? I think, onto I think each other? the trauma is more related to stress. So, I mean, like in in times of severe stress, I guess coughing up blood would be a thing. Although I'm guessing that one's more probably the Wachowskis trying to add a bit of dramatic. Uh, not tension, but uh, weight to it of, oh, look how bad it is. It's even affecting him in the real world. Uh, so I'm guessing, I, I think my, my theory on how they would actually make it work, though, is, I mean, all the humans are connected to with a bunch of tubes and wires and whatnot. It wouldn't strike me as impossible for them to be able to uh, to extract, you know, sperm, egg, mix them together. However. Okay. Okay. No, 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 no. But here's the question, though. What if in the Matrix they had video games and then men didn't want to have uh, relationships anymore and they just played video games it the whole would, time? It would destroy how the would entire they, Matrix. How would, have have how would that no work? Way. Fortnite beats the Matrix. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> you just... Brevin, Brevin, that none of these objections uh, impede that's a good point. Yeah, the robots are left in storks. <laughs> Look, none, of these, none of these objections impedes storks can can fly, you know, rain or shine or matrix. Yeah, I'm know, confused, so. actually. Uh, well, if you're confused, it's normally a good idea to read something about it. Hey, Stephen, did you read anything that made you this week? I, uh, I, I did read something. It wasn't about babies or the matrix, uh, but it was, uh, I, I, I mentioned uh, earlier, I, I've been rereading through a collection of essays. Um, <laughs> Uh, by by David Foster Wallace, 
Uh, and this week I just hit uh, his essay Up Simba, which was his coverage of a week on the road with John McCain during the 2000 election primary. A very unique perspective. Um, he's not he's not a political analyst. In fact, he kind of stresses that at the very beginning um, that he was hired by Rolling Stone precisely because he wasn't on a political. Uh, he's not a political analyst or a political writer. Um, he's also not a Republican voter. He didn't vote for McCain. He he voted in the Democratic uh, primary, not the Republican one. Uh, and he was allowed to choose which candidate to cover, and he really wanted to cover McCain um, because he like he kind of said like out of all the politicians in this race, McCain might be the only one in, who might actually mean it when he says he wants to serve his country, serve something outside of himself, bigger than himself. Um, mainly citing as evidence uh, the instance in where wherein uh, McCain. Uh, I mean, we all know the story. He was he was captured in Vietnam, uh, tortured pretty horrifically, and then brought in to the um, the the commandant of the camp, brought into the the commandant's office, and was offered the chance to just leave. You can you can get up, you can leave. Um, you know, no worries, because they wanted the PR, the PR coup of releasing uh, the the American, the son of the uh, the opposing general. Uh, and McCain said no to the result of them torturing him again uh, and locking him away in a punishment box for about five years. Um, and he he used this as, as as evidence for clearly he believes in what he's doing. Like whether he's right or wrong, whether you disagree with him or agree with him he he really does believe in serving something outside of himself and uh he at the same time he doesn't fawn over him except maybe in the opening scene where he's describing that he doesn't fawn over him there's a healthy dose of cynicism that comes with it for example he also considers how mccain uses the that stay in the pow camp as a marketing strategy i mean they they he said it over and over and over again during his campaign but even even during his tangents concerning how cynical the pro- process is, the, the process of um, kind of the political system, like he, he just can't escape the fact that McCain actually seems to mean what he says. Um, and it, it, it goes into various uh, different elements. And on the whole, it just gave me an appreciation, not only for McCain, but also for the general involvement in the political sphere. Um, he had a pretty indicting, uh, remark on how if you're not caring uh, and if if you if you don't vote if you don't take part part in it and you just chalk it off as a cynical enterprise um, that that's kind of the opposite of serving something outside of yourself and it also is just kind of feeding into what the establishment would already want um, the more voters get that get turned off the better for them uh, and so just on the whole I thought it was a message I needed to hear to kind of you know it even as cynical a process that politics is, it's still worth serving something outside of myself. I I really think you should just look up online if you if there's like a like a nonprofit you can donate to and then be adopted uh, postnominously as David Foster Wallace's like foster kid because I I feel like that would like be a great Christmas present. It, it really would be. I just I I, I just I, I I just want him to be my dad. You know, Dad, if you're listening to this, I, I'm joking. I, I love you very much. And would never trade you, but. You know, if I could have but, a stepdad but, as well, I, I'm just saying. Can your dad rock a, a bandana? That's he the can't. question. He can't, though. So that's also pretty, pretty damning. Damn, that is pretty bad. You know what? That makes me mad. And when I'm mad, I rant about things. 
Uh, so for my rant of the week uh, is a discovery I made, something called uh, Inspirabot. Uh, so it's what happens when you feed a robot a few thousand tranquil images and model inspirational phrases and then increase its vocabulary by a few thousand words and just let it go wild. Uh, you can just click it and generate random inspirational phrases. Uh, some gems that I found. Uh, it's a lovely California sky uh, with palm trees and sunlight. And the text reads, the police state is a is like a straitjacket. It breaks you from the inside. <laughs> and uh, and a close-up of an albino kitten playing in golden brown grass. Uh, and it's a uh, hide the fact that you are too dehumanized. Uh, and a profile of a couple on a beach, vast in shadow, l- looking at each other as only lovers can, backed against a yellow-orange sunset. And uh, it says, when we die, existence will be okay. So you might as well drink wheatgrass juice and achieve mindfulness. Um, and the best ones are ones that seem to have genuine insight, despite being generated monkey and typewriter style. It's kind of like if you had a Zen master who only knows how to speak in non sequiturs. Uh, and so from here, I have only questions. Can we separate art from the lack of, of an artist? Uh, something, something, uh, Searle's Chinese box. Uh, if we outsource our inspiration to robots and away from fragile meatbag artists, will we finally obtain rational, untainted in- uh untainted inspiration free from human weakness uh and i have a hearty metallic and randomly generated yes it's the the logical conclusion of the enlightenment project i suppose just just rationalize everything let the machines do it for us the machines will 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 complete our aesthetics as well as our ethics Mm -hmm. amen i will i welcome our machine overlords i i have i have a rant so actually uh just today i think I saw a rather odd IBM commercial uh, stating that their desire is to get more artificial intelligence into the classroom. And I honestly do not understand why people think that dumping a ton of, yeah, I know, right? It's it's, it's a a party line I constantly hear from particularly big corporate, big technology corporations is that dumping a ton of technology in schools is going to make things better. Now, I, I somewhat understand what they're going for, even on a non-cynical level, level of they just want more customers. Like, I'm sure that there are some corporate execs that feel very good about themselves thinking, hey, we're making education better and whatnot. So fair enough. I understand that. And I'll try not to be too cynical about it, though. I can only try so hard. And I also try to say this with some nuance, because certainly there is some amount of or there should be some amount of computer literacy for better, or for worse. I mean, kind of in the age we're in. People need to know how to use computers and you may as well teach typing at a, at a young age like that, that, that just follows and teaching people how to use the internet responsibly and to, to fact check and whatnot. Awesome. That, that is, that is a thing that I think would be good. So there are certain aspects of technology that will edify students. Science classes need tech and all, all that sort of stuff. That said, I, I guess I constantly fall back on why do second graders need iPads? Um, why, why do why do elementary students need to have AI in the classroom? Why do middle school and high school students need AI in the classroom? Is there something we're gaining with this? And is there something we're losing with this? And I, I saw even in the comments, quite a few of the teachers were not thrilled about this. Some of them were just saying, give me my freaking chalkboard back and let me do my job. So it, it, yeah, it's, it's a strange thing. Uh, Neil Postman, um, he wrote uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He was already skeptical of even television in the, in the schools, uh, simply given that the medium of communication that, te- that TV uses is one primarily to entertain rather than edify. And just the medium itself influences the message that is given. 
Uh, and I would contend that the technology we're funneling into schools is the same as that, if not worse. Uh, so I, I guess I'm, I'm constantly befuddled by the uh, tech corporations line of we're going to get tech into schools and therefore everything will be better. I mean, the, the most cynical and true feeling take that I've heard is uh, you teach kids to code because right now coders are expensive. And if you raise a generation of coding wage slaves, you will have to pay them that much less when they join the workforce. Actually, my real message is I want to get technology out of schools because I don't want a bunch of those snot-nosed kids running me out of my job. Well, kids having iPads in the classroom isn't isn't teaching them to code. If If, if anything... The damage done to their ability to think clearly or pay attention to anything will actually prevent them uh, organizing a program. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, my my equally cynical take uh, is not that it's teaching them how to code. I don't I don't really think it is. Um, uh, I I think it's just it's just straight up getting more users and selling more product. You know, schools are a market like everything else is a market. Um, this is just another uh, example of, you know, capital being at war with human dignity. I would I would be inclined to agree. Oh, um, yeah. So my rant of the week. I um, hate repetitive rants. That's hmm. my rant of the week. I, I guess that kind of just was sort of my rant of the week i i I mean okay thomas let me let me give you a a phrase here to to hmm. make this your rant um so one of my friends posted uh a quote from a catholic priest which was all good all good religion is pursued moderately yes or no oh my gosh what well uh, I mean, I guess it depends on exactly what he means by moderate, but I don't think I don't think he's going for some kind of nuanced, um, like Aristotelian golden mean thing. Um, if if you take if you take religion seriously, the only and you actually. You know, if you believe it and take it seriously, the the only appropriate response is to commit completely. Um, is what we call. I, I think a lot of the a lot of comments like the one just read is a response to extremism. Um, I don't think that. A lot of what we call uh, extremism today um, is the same thing as sort of complete, uh, you know, sort of complete surrender to God. Um, uh, in fact, a lot of what extreme is actually a refusal to uh, obey God just in a different direction than. The secular culture. So, um, so if 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 that's what the priest is referring to, then you know more power to him. But but a lot of times when, when people make 
sort of hem and haw about moderation in religion, what they're really saying is um, make your religion subordinate to a secular uh, liberal consensus. Um, and that is just, you, you can't square that with any kind of earnest uh, real belief in uh, Christ and his church, certainly. Amen. <clears throat> the the thing that really made me sad, though, about the comment is uh, I would, also not to stereotype too much, but I wouldn't be surprised if a Jesuit say that, but this came from a Dominican. Well, I mean, well, I mean, if it came from a Dominican, maybe it is the sort of good, good interpretation. Uh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> If, and if there's anything sociology has taught me, it's that correlation is causation. That is so true. Uh, sociologists are very much in agreement with that. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Yep. That was, that was beautiful. On that note, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Thomas. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Enlightenment.